everyone. Uh, thank you all for uh, coming this afternoon. Uh, my name uh, is Aaron Kaufman, and uh, we're going to be discussing clinical aspects of major neurocognitive disorders. Uh, I am a uh, general adult and geriatric psychiatrist at UCLA. I've been on the faculty uh, at UCLA since 2007, and I'm thrilled to be here today to discuss this topic, which is uh, uh, one of the um, sort of areas uh, that I spend a lot of time uh, uh, managing uh, in both the inpatient and outpatient setting uh, at UCLA. Uh, in terms of disclosures, I just want to point out that I'm a clinician educator, and I also serve as a consultant for the LA County Department of Mental Health. Uh, we provide consultations to primarily the Genesis program. Uh, and uh, another important disclosure is that we may talk a little bit about medications here, not too much, but uh, when we do, there may be some off-label uh, discussion uh, that occurs. So um, in terms of our objectives for this afternoon, at the end of this session, I'm hoping that you all will be able to list the four most common dementing illnesses and perhaps be able to describe some of the clinical features of Alzheimer's disease, dementia with Lewy bodies, and frontotemporal dementia, and perhaps be able to select some of the appropriate treatments for Alzheimer's disease, dementia with Lewy bodies, and frontotemporal dementia, and just uh, thinking about a framework for uh, uh, considering the important things uh, to be uh, on the lookout for uh, when uh, encountering patients and families uh, struggling uh, with this illness course. So we're gonna go ahead and get started with the case. Mr. J is an 84 year old gentleman with a five year history of cognitive impairment. His instrumental activities of daily living have been steadily declining. He now requires a caregiver at home for assistance. He has lost motivation to participate in previous interests. And he frequently wakes in the middle of the night. When Mr. J does awaken at night, he believes that his home is not his real home. He makes attempts to leave his residence in the middle of the night. And on one occasion, he thought he saw someone stealing from his home and he grabbed a kitchen knife for protection. So this is a pretty uh, uh, serious uh, set of circumstances when of course weapons are involved and uh, perhaps some paranoia is present. And sometimes uh, these are circumstances that uh, can lead to a person uh, being uh, brought to an inpatient uh, hospital. Uh, but these kinds of symptoms are not tremendously uncommon in individuals suffering with a range of uh, dementing illnesses. So I'd like to start by talking a little bit about older Americans. Uh, and uh, I would point out that uh, in 2019, there, uh, the estimate was that there were 54 uh, million individuals in the United States over the age of 65. 
Um, I've watched this number steadily creep up over the last decade or so. I remember the first time I started thinking about this figure, it was around 37 million. Uh, so it has uh, steadily increased and uh, older adults now represent 16.5% of the US population or about one in six Americans. And it's estimated that by 2030, there will be uh, over 70 million Americans, uh, more than twice their number in the year 2000. And uh, although people uh, over the age of 65 represented uh, a little over 12% of the population in 2000, uh, this figure is expected to rise to about 20% of the population uh, in 2030. And uh, I think of this in particular as a geriatric psychiatrist, uh, recognizing that uh, uh, many of my uh, younger patients uh, hopefully will stay in my practice and will become older patients. Uh, and in addition, uh, we have had the, the population from the baby boom generation uh, uh, turn past 65, and we've seen this significant rise in the population. And I imagine that in many treatment settings, there have been an increased uh, number of older adults that have been seeking care. Uh, Sorry. Um, in terms of thinking about uh, cognition on a spectrum, uh, I like to think of it through the lens of some stages. Uh, if we start uh, thinking about cognition through the lens of normal aging, um, it is not at all uncommon that individuals may notice that they start to have a little bit of slippage in their uh, recall abilities. They may find that uh, words don't come to them quite as quickly uh, as they uh, previously were able to have those words come to them. It's not uncommon to go upstairs to your room looking for something, and then by the time you get to your room, you realize you don't remember what you went up there for, uh, and uh, uh, you have to kind of backtrack to figure out uh, uh, what uh, uh, you were looking for. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize that, that those types of things are actually not really outside of the realm of normal aging. Uh, they're extremely common. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we find is that when an individual starts to have some subjective concerns, um, uh, we often find that patients themselves are more concerned than their family members may be regarding their cognition, and that their memory is generally intact for important uh, life events, and most notably that there is no decline in functioning. Uh, sometimes, uh, if you were to uh, consider uh, testing these individuals on a standardized memory test, you might find that they're doing a bit worse than young college students cramming for tests. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, in general, these, these individuals um, uh, would otherwise have a very low risk for going on uh, to convert to having dementia, certainly within uh, a year, um, uh, where estimates would probably be around 1% or so. Uh, if we take this a step further, you may have heard of the term mild cognitive impairment. 
And MCI refers to a state in which an individual is noticing that they have a uh, memory complaint. Uh, in this case, I'm discussing MCI of an amnestic type focused on memory functioning. And when these individuals are tested, we can see objective findings on testing. For instance, uh, if we did a standard memory test, uh, we might see that these individuals are one and a half uh, uh, standard deviations below the mean uh, for uh, age match controls. So these folks are having a harder time compared to their age match peers. Uh, however, uh, they're general functioning is still intact, which is to say that this is not affecting their uh, uh, basic or instrumental activities of daily living. Um, why is it important to recognize mild cognitive impairment? Well, for one, it is a risk factor state for going on to convert uh, to uh, a dementia. There are estimates that approximately 10 to 15% of individuals with MCI will go on to develop dementia within a year, and those figures may rise to as high as 50% uh, uh, within five years, although uh, there are definitely individuals that may uh, maintain a, a static course and not necessarily have a decline uh, in their cognition uh, beyond mild cognitive impairment. But given the risk, it's important to recognize these individuals and to continue to follow them a bit more closely. When we think about the next step uh, with respect to cognition uh, on the spectrum, uh, we think about dementia. And, you know, I think uh, a helpful way of considering dementia is thinking about it as an illness of uh, acquired sets of cognitive deficits which impact daily functioning. So in essence, an individual is having uh, cognitive impairment that is interfering with either social, occupational, or interpersonal functioning uh, or affecting their uh, activities of daily living. Um, and uh, I also list here uh, uh, characterized by behavioral and psychiatric symptoms. And we're gonna talk more about this as uh, we move on through the afternoon as these behavioral and psychiatric symptoms are quite common in individuals who are suffering from dementia. Uh, you may also see other terminology for dementia, including um, terminology such as major neurocognitive disorder. Major neurocognitive disorder uh, is the term now utilized in the DSM-5. And uh, uh, when uh, uh, that version of the DSM uh, uh, came out, um, the category of major neurocognitive disorder was added uh, with uh, the ability to add what it's due to. So for instance, you might have major neurocognitive disorder due to Alzheimer's disease or major neurocognitive disorder due to vascular dementia. Um, and uh, we're, we're talking though about the same uh, uh, underlying processes uh, for all intents and purposes, you could use the word dementia or major neurocognitive disorder interchangeably. 
When we think about the prevalence of dementing diseases, it's important to recognize that Alzheimer's disease is the number one cause of dementing illnesses. Um, this data from Mario Mendez goes back now probably a couple of decades, so there might be more updated information, but uh, approximately 35% um, of individuals um, with dementing uh, illnesses have Alzheimer's disease as a, a, a sole diagnosis. And there's another 15% that have a mixed presentation of Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. So taken in total, about 50% of cases of dementing illnesses uh, include having Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the uh, second most common uh, dementing illness uh, uh, is vascular dementia, uh, for which we might expect to see 10% of pure vascular dementia. But again, in terms of having a mixed vascular Alzheimer's presentation, there are about 15% uh, of, uh, uh, of cases that are mixed together. The third most common is dementia with Lewy bodies uh, at about 15% of cases. And then uh, the fourth most common is FTLD or frontotemporal lobar degeneration, which is made up of several uh, conditions, uh, uh, but the most common being the behavioral variant uh, of frontotemporal dementia. Uh, in addition to that, we of course start to see small numbers of a range of other forms of uh, dementing illnesses, including uh, dementia due to um, uh, toxic uh, metabolic syndromes, uh, alcohol use, uh, 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 HIV-related illness, and, and a range of other things. So when I think about the approach to the assessment of neurodegenerative disease. The big take home is history uh, is probably the most important piece um, in the assessment process. And generally speaking, I think about assessment through the lens of the time course or the, the temporal uh, facets, um, as well as the cognitive profile that may be observed. Um, the presence or absence of particular behavioral symptoms, the presence or absence of any specific neurologic findings, and also thinking about uh, how functioning is impacted. And all of these things taken together can really help point one into a direction as to which type of neurocognitive disorder may be present. Uh, in addition, uh, physical examination can certainly be important, and it would be important for there to be a careful neurologic exam uh, as part of the assessment for neurodegenerative disease. In terms of cognitive evaluation, there are a range of screening tools that can be utilized. Uh, the MMSE or Folstein Mental, uh, Mini Mental State Examination uh, Test the Montreal Cognitive uh, Assessment, and the MINICOG are a few tools uh, that can be utilized in order to do an initial screening, uh, be it in a primary care physician's office or a geriatrician's office, or perhaps uh, at a community mental health center. 
these types of screening tools can uh, help give us an idea as to an individual's cognitive functioning. It is important to recognize that these screening tools do not diagnose uh, a dementing illness, but could be a good first step at recognizing some form of cognitive impairment. Additionally, neuropsychologic testing can uh, further delineate uh, particular profiles of cognitive impairment, and there are many tools available to neuropsychologists in order to be able to uh, clarify um, specific cognitive strengths and weaknesses, uh, and in doing so, such testing can be particularly valuable, both at perhaps providing for diagnostic clarity, but also for being able to establish a baseline for which there can then be future comparison, let's say one year or two years uh, uh, in the future. In terms of thinking about laboratory data, there are a few fairly routine uh, types of laboratory data that we like to obtain. Uh, the CBC or uh, complete uh, 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 blood chemistries, uh, a chem panel uh, uh, checking for thyroid function, and uh, vitamin B12 uh, are important uh, labs to consider. RPR, which is a, a test for uh, uh, syphilis, is probably uh, uh, an important test to consider, although I think it is very rare that we will see um, uh, a case of dementia um, that uh, manifests due to um, uh, uh, syphilis uh, 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 as an illness uh, exposure earlier in life, um, but it's an important consideration. And then depending upon uh, the outcome uh, of these laboratory data, um, uh, there may be uh, other more detailed uh, analyses that could be performed, including uh, perhaps looking at things such as uh, HIV uh, serologies, pot potentially looking at, um, uh, uh, for instance, lumbar puncture uh, for CSF uh, uh, or cerebral spinal fluid uh, data. But you know, not, not too many people want to volunteer uh, uh, having such uh, evaluations, so we try to use other tools more often than not. Um, in terms of neuroimaging, uh, there are a few different types of neuroimaging that are utilized, MRI being uh, uh, perhaps amongst the most valuable structural neuro neuroimaging along with uh, CT scans, and then FDG PET scans, which are CT scans that uh, 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 involve having uh, uptake of a glucose uh, uh, that is uh, radio labeled, and it's then uh, observed, uh, and we're basically looking for the uptake of the sugar in certain parts of the brain. And what can be found is that in certain conditions, we may see abnormalities that are consistent with certain profiles. Uh, uh, and uh, FDG PET is uh, one of those tools available when uh, we're uncertain about the diagnosis. Um, in addition to that, more recently in the research realm, there is a, a type of uh, a PET scan that radio labels for amyloid. Uh, amyloid is one of the pathologic uh, uh, 
manifestations of Alzheimer's disease. And so we can look at uh, uh, potentially uh, the impact of the presence of amyloid. Um, and uh, th this amyloid labeled uh, PET is not uh, probably in routine use at this point, uh, but uh, may have a role in the future, particularly for identifying individuals that may be candidates for specific uh, targeted therapies. So I wanna talk a little bit about Alzheimer's disease. Um, it affects one in nine older adults. And uh, uh, according to uh, the Alzheimer's Association, the figure is now up to about 6.2 million Americans that have Alzheimer's disease. Um, this illness does disproportionately affect women more than men, and it's not exclusively due to the fact that women tend to outlive men on average, but uh, there are uh, uh, beyond that probably um, some other biologic factors that predispose women uh, to having a, a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, Rates increase with age, and age probably is the most significant risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease. And uh, it's estimated, and this figure has steadily risen, the, up to almost 35% of those at age 85 and older uh, have Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so uh, this is certainly something to be considered uh, among older adults. And uh, I would also point out that uh, for individuals under the age of 65, there have been previous estimates that perhaps 200,000 uh, individuals may have an earlier onset version of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, that's clearly less common, uh, but it is a, uh, a, um, uh, a significant uh, uh, consideration uh, for those that uh, uh, develop Alzheimer's disease before the age of 65, uh, there is probably a greater likelihood that there may be um, uh, a genetic contribution to that presentation. Uh, in terms of thinking about costs, um, it is you know, fairly staggering. It's estimated that the lifetime cost of care is now approaching uh, uh, close to four hundred thousand uh, dollars. And in twenty twenty, uh, over eleven million uh, caregivers, and we're talking about unpaid uh, caregivers, provided over fifteen billion hours of unpaid care. Um, and that was uh, estimated to be valued at over $250 billion. Uh, so it's pretty staggering the, the, the burden uh, of this illness uh, has not only on the individuals, but on, on their, their family members and other supports who uh, provide uh, care. Uh, one in three older adults uh, uh, dies with Alzheimer's disease or another dementia. And Alzheimer's disease is currently the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. In terms of survival, there's a range. There are individuals that can uh, live up to 20 years with Alzheimer's disease. And there's individuals that might live a shorter period of time following diagnosis. Uh, it's thought that the sort of uh, 
mean uh, uh, survival times around four to eight years, um, uh, maybe up to as high as 10 years um, uh, in duration. So if we look at the clinical features of Alzheimer's disease, the first thing to comment on is, is that onset tends to be gradual. Uh, usually these are not scenarios where a person suddenly appears impaired. It's usually more subtle, more gradual process. And uh, we tend to see memory deficits. Um, and the kinds of deficits that we see are difficulties with encoding information and then being able to store it for later recall. Uh, and, uh, and so basically the way that I like to conceptualize this is if we think about this like a computer, um, the hard drive is not working so well. Um, and we're really not laying down this information on the hard drive effectively. Therefore, it isn't easily able to be accessed at a later time. There tends to be a temporal gradient with better recall for much more remote information. More recent information uh, tends to be uh, uh, less preserved compared to more remote information. And so one of the things that we'll see is that individuals with Alzheimer's disease may really develop a, a marked uh, anterograde dysfunction where essentially they're not able to lay down new memories, but they may recall things rather well from the more remote past. Uh, we also will often see language deficits for individual with individuals with Alzheimer's disease. This often can start off as word finding difficulty and this can then eventually progress to what we term anomia. Anomia is uh, basically uh, reflecting the inability to name objects. So for instance, if you look here, I have this object uh, here and I might ask a patient if they can name this object and uh, they may struggle to do so. If they can't name this object, I might then follow that up with them and say, well, what do you do with it? And if they say, well, you know, I, I write with it, then that's going to tell me that they still understand that this is a pen, but they've perhaps lost the ability to name it. Um, and so the inability to name objects is what would be referred to as anomia. In contrast, if I ask them, what do you do with this, and they can't show me or they can't describe it, then, then they've lost really an understanding of the fact that this is a writing instrument, and they may actually have developed aphasia so that they, they have language dysfunction um, uh, where they're unable to understand um, uh, either the language that they're receiving uh, or be able to express themselves appropriately. Um, Additionally, we can see visual spatial deficits, and um, uh, these visual spatial deficits uh, may be particularly obvious um, uh, when asking individuals to copy figures. Uh, we may see that they lose detail as part of their copying. Um, we also may see visual uh, spatial deficits when drawing a clock, although um, it's a little bit more complicated with clocks because it's not just exclusively visual spatial functioning. 
um, uh, that needs to be considered. But you can imagine that if an individual is having visual spatial deficits, that may also impact things like their ability to drive, for instance, and appreciating uh, things within their uh, visual field and the spacing of objects. So uh, taken in total, we see this pattern of memory deficits, language deficits, and visual spatial deficits with a gradual onset. Uh, the other thing we can see is uh, apraxia. Apraxia uh, as a term is the inability to perform learned motor acts in the absence of an impaired primary motor or sensory function. And uh, this tends not to occur in the early stages. Um, uh, it tends to occur in middle stages uh, of the disease. So it, to help you understand what I mean by this, when we talk about apraxias, we might, for instance, ask a person, can you show us how you might brush your teeth um, and have them actually act out the process of turning on the faucet and taking the toothbrush and putting it under the water, and then maybe opening up the, uh, uh, the, the toothpaste and then putting the toothpaste on the toothbrush and then demonstrating how they might proceed to brush their teeth. So if they're not able to do that, that might be a sign of, uh, 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 of an apraxia where they don't have actual impairment in the ability to um, uh, do the physical functions, but putting it all together um, as, a per, as a learned motor act is impaired. Um, as illness becomes uh, more pronounced, we may see that uh, apraxia uh, can also occur um, for things like getting dressed, right? So um, uh, you might uh, give a person a shirt and they may not know how to put it on or they may not be able to put on the buttons. And so these would be examples of uh, dressing apraxias. And obviously you can imagine that as individuals get more and more impaired, um, the types of apraxia that develop um, can become more pronounced and they may eventually lose the ability to take care of really basic functions, including using the restroom or perhaps even basic tasks such as eating and swallowing. Um, so uh, I'm just gonna jump to the chat for a second here. I saw a question, do patients typically have insight of the impairments uh, uh, when there are visual spatial deficits? This is a great question. And I, I would say in, in my experience, um, uh, individuals usually are not aware that they have those types of deficits. Uh, uh, they, they may notice uh, that they have some uh, 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 elements of things having happened, like for instance, maybe they got into a car accident and they might you know, be able to recall that they were having more difficulty driving, but that they may not necessarily link it to the fact that they're having these impairments in their visual spatial uh, functioning. So that's a great question. Um, a follow-up uh, uh, area to discuss is uh, executive functioning. Um, uh, and we can see dysfunction in uh, executive functioning in individuals with Alzheimer's disease. And it tends to be somewhat subtle in early stages, but it can definitely 
progress as the illness uh, progresses and can include impaired insight, um, impaired judgment. Uh, we may see uh, changes in reasoning, um, abstraction of information, uh, and uh, planning. And so, uh, you know, this, of course, becomes important because our lives are filled with having to plan, organize, and execute things uh, in order to get things done. And if people start to experience some dysfunction in that sort of uh, uh, set of skills, it's going to really lead to a lot of uh, functional impairment. Um, and again, this may be more subtle in the earlier stages of illness, but can become more pronounced. Um, sometimes we'll see this be relatively subtle, um, but you might see it, for instance, in, you know, sort of, uh, you know, who people start to trust for making decisions. And you might have a, a person who would never have, um, for instance, uh, decided to donate to a certain cause all of a sudden start donating to all sorts of causes, um, or uh, these individuals might um, uh, have a harder time being able to detect when they're potentially, uh, 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 you know, going to be at risk for a scam, for instance. Uh, and uh, uh, we may see when it comes to things like investments, uh, you could see an individual still actually have the skills to be able to calculate, but maybe they're starting to make some poor choices regarding investment strategy, and maybe they should be getting more conservative with their finances, and instead they're getting much more, uh, 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 you know, uh, aggressive and, 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 and perhaps a little bit impulsive in some decision making. So these are the kinds of things that we may potentially see in earlier stages of Alzheimer's disease that aren't necessarily um, leading to um, uh, profound impairments, but as the illness uh, progresses, um, uh, we can definitely see a lot of executive dysfunction. Um, finally, we can see behavioral symptoms, and uh, these behavioral symptoms can uh, include a wide range of things, but uh, specifically, we may see the presence of apathy or depressive symptoms, perhaps an increase in symptoms of anxiety, um, and uh, as the illness progresses, we may start to see um, uh, uh, signs of psychosis, including either uh, hallucinations or perhaps delusions. Uh, and we may uh, start to see forms of agitation and aggression. So, uh, Behavioral and psychological symptoms in dementia, as I mentioned, are actually quite common. Um, if you're interested in looking at the literature regarding this, uh, you uh, could look under the term BPSD and you'll, you'll find a lot either on the web or uh, uh, through uh, looking through databases uh, uh, for studies. And uh, BPSD, it, covers the range of different types of symptoms that may be seen uh, in dementing illnesses. I like to think of them through four major domains, the first being agitation, the second being psychosis, the 
third being sort of mood and aff uh, affective and anxiety related, and the fourth being personality. Um, and so um, when thinking about agitation, I like to conceptualize it through a lens of either being aggressive or non-aggressive. And the aggressive forms might outright be physical forms of aggression. So we might see punching, hitting, uh, uh, grabbing. Uh, we may see vocalizing, uh, 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 which is, um, you know, sort of repetitive vocalization uh, of uh, words, uh, or it may be shouting without necessarily a specific purpose attached to it. We may see verbal insults, uh, 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 profanity uh, being uh, uh, outwardly uh, shared. Um, and then we may see non-aggressive forms of agitation, restlessness, wandering, perhaps purposeless motor behavior or pacing. Um, and uh, these forms of agitation can uh, at times be quite uh, distressing for patients or for their family members uh, and can definitely interfere with functioning. Um, as I mentioned regarding psychosis, we can see the presence of delusions. Uh, uh, we can see the presence of hallucinations uh, uh, present. Um, for uh, affective things, as I mentioned, apathy is actually quite common in Alzheimer's disease, but we can see a range from uh, depressive symptomatology, irritability, um, rarely we may see euphoria, um, there can be sleep disturbance, uh, uh, and then we may, in certain types of uh, illnesses, see um, changes in eating behaviors and obsessive ruminations. And then finally, we may see personality changes, and these might range from sort of general withdrawal to potentially disinhibition um, and hypersexuality. Uh, and so why are these BPSD so important? Well, you know, obviously these symptoms are distressing for patients. And in addition, these can be often very distressing for family and caregivers. Uh, it definitely can lead to caregiver burnout, and it can lead to caregiver depression, um, and it can lead to a reduction in quality of life. And perhaps, uh, you know, very relevant is that these are the kinds of symptoms that can often lead to an increased risk for being institutionalized and having to be taken from one's home. Uh, in terms of the frequency of BPSD, at least 80 to 90% of individuals with uh, a dementia will experience at least one symptom during the course of their dementia. And for individuals with Alzheimer's disease in clinical settings, the figures are that about 20% have agitation or aggression. And when you get to long-term care settings, that figure probably rises to 40 to 60%. Um, in clinical settings, we may see the presence of psychosis in up to 25% of patients. And we may see 20% of patients in clinical settings having depressive illness as well. So these are pretty significant numbers. Um, uh, Constantine uh, Leketsos uh, did a study um, in Cache County, Utah. Um, it was a study of memory and aging. And they basically looked at the study of elderly residents in Cache County and screened over 5,000 individuals for cognitive impairment and then evaluated for the prevalence of behavioral symptoms in the elderly. 
and they basically looked at individuals that were diagnosed with dementia compared to individuals that were not. And if we take a look at this slide here, um, uh, this is a summary of uh, uh, symptoms. On the uh, y-axis, we have here the percentage of individuals um, with the symptom. On the x-axis here, we have 10 listed symptoms, uh, which are part of the NPI. The NPI uh, stands for um, uh, uh, the Neuropsychiatric Inventory. Um, and uh, these individuals uh, may have uh, symptoms ranging here, uh, including apathy, depression, agitation, irritability, delusions, anxiety, motor disturbances, hallucinations, disinhibition, and elation. And so here we can see that um, the, the, this uh, sort of purple bar are the individuals with dementia and uh, the pink bars are those that do not have dementia. And you can clearly see that those with dementia um, were uh, much more likely to have these symptoms. And similarly here, you can see that over 25% in their study um, with dementia had apathy, again, over 20% um, had depression, over 20% had agitation. And you can see here, for those that had delusions, somewhere between 15 and, and 20%. Um, and then number eight, uh, uh, hallucinations, another 10 to 15%. So you kind of get around that, that 20 to 25% uh, um, rate uh, of psychosis. Um, and uh, so these uh, uh, are, you know, symptoms that are uh, quite common in individuals uh, that develop Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, and so these are symptoms uh, that can be uh, challenging to manage. Um, I'm just going to jump to another question here in the chat. It's, the question was, uh, with the 25% of patients that experience psychosis, do symptoms of psychosis surface before there might be concerning signs of dementia? This is a, 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 a great question. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard to answer. I suppose that there may be some prodromal psychosis in individuals that are going on to develop Alzheimer's disease, but I don't think it's really super common. I, I think that psychosis tends to present a little later in the illness. Um, uh, and uh, generally speaking, uh, uh, we tend not to see those psychotic symptoms um, uh, until illness is a bit more progressed, um, uh, although it is possible to occur um, during milder phases of illness. And so that, of course, then raises, uh, I think, a great question of, you know, how would we be able to clearly differentiate uh, uh, the root cause of the symptoms, meaning is this late onset psychosis uh, uh, due to another etiology, such as late onset schizophrenia, or for an individual who might already at baseline have psychotic symptoms, how do we tease out if those symptoms uh, uh, 
uh, are in fact perhaps the beginnings of uh, uh, a dementing illness. And I would say clearly if they've had longstanding illness, um, then you know probably it's gonna be really challenging to tease that out. But if, if they have not, um, certainly if a person suddenly develops these symptoms, we would wanna be suspicious about the possibility that they could have a neurodegenerative illness. Um, but usually speaking, um, that wouldn't probably be the case in, until it was a bit more obvious they were, that they were having cognitive impairment. So, so I hope that that answered uh, uh, that set of questions. Um, uh, the follow-up here was, uh, I work on Skid Row and work with clients experiencing homelessness and severe psychosis. And I'm curious which individuals might have untreated Alzheimer's disease that might be masked. And I mean, I think it's, it, it's a great question, particularly for individuals that are probably going to experience a, a range of functional impairments. And it may be hard to tease out which of those functional impairments are due to um, an underlying severe psychotic illness for which those individuals probably will have some frontal executive deficits um, and uh, which of these individuals uh, may have Alzheimer's disease. I mean, I would say that, you know, obviously it's going to be less likely that it's Alzheimer's disease if people are in their um, you know, 50s um, and even early 60s, but obviously as they start to get older, the risk of Alzheimer's disease is uh, going to increase. And then I think some of the uh, focus may be on trying to test some of those cognitive domains and also perhaps get some of the supplemental pieces of data that could support um, a diagnosis, including neuroimaging, for instance, um, uh, uh, among other things. Uh, but that's a great question because, you know, when individuals have some pretty severe um, uh, uh, psychiatric disturbances at baseline, uh, those individuals are going to experience cognitive impairment. Uh, and so it then can be tricky to tease out whether those uh, impairments in some way um, uh, might be masking the onset of something like Alzheimer's disease and you may not pick up on it or just assume that it's due to their underlying psychosis when in fact they may be starting to experience some impairments that could be for instance due to Alzheimer's disease. Um, and it's probably rather challenging to tease that out. Um, uh, I think one of the main ways that I would try to tease it out would be to see if there were fundamental changes in functioning um, uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, basic activities of daily living uh, or instrumental activities of daily living. But again, these can also be impaired in individuals with severe psychosis. Um, a follow-up to that uh, is thinking about depressive illness um, because we, we can definitely have individuals that can have a prodromal depressive period. Um, and if that depression is severe enough, uh, they may experience some cognitive impairment that sometimes has been termed uh, pseudo-dementia of depression where these individuals basically are experiencing such profound uh, depressive illness that they are looking like they're demented. Um, and theoretically, we treat the depression for these individuals and their cognition gets better. Um, so this is why we refer to it as pseudo-dementia of depression. I think the interesting thing is, is that even those individuals who could conceivably get better, 
they are at risk for going on to develop dementia at a later time within the next few years. So even if uh, they do have pseudo-dementia, and it's important to recognize that, that also is perhaps a risk factor state for going on to, for instance, develop Alzheimer's disease at a later time. Okay, so I'm just gonna briefly talk about um, neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and uh, I don't want us collectively here to overthink it, particularly with individuals of uh, uh, different backgrounds. But I think a big take home that I would have for you all, if you can hold on to, you might have heard of the term amyloid. Um, and amyloid uh, uh, plaques are one of the hallmark features of pathology that are seen uh, in Alzheimer's disease. And basically, these, these proteins uh, accumulate, and it's thought that these uh, beta amyloid plaques are um, uh, a product of the illness and conceivably part of the underlying cause of the illness. There, this um, is the driving force for what's been called the amyloid hypothesis, which is the thought that this buildup of amyloid contributes to dysfunction in neuronal connections and ultimately leads to uh, brain dysfunction. Uh, in addition, we can see what are called neurofibrillary tangles. Again, it's another form of neuropathology seen under the microscope. Uh, neurofibrillary tangles themselves are uh, um, also conceivably potentially could be picked up on imaging. And I think I might've mentioned to you before that there are some modes of imaging that might be able to um, pick up on the deposition of amyloid and potentially some image, advanced imaging techniques that can pick up on neurofibrillary tangles. Um, so these are thought to be some of the underlying neuropathology uh, that's present in Alzheimer's disease. Um, at least in the, you know, sort of the, the early and then progressive stages. Um, and it's important to recognize that some of these pathologies like amyloid can be present long before individuals start to demonstrate symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, there can be a preclinical phase where individuals may be having some of the neuropathologic signs of Alzheimer's disease. Um, then eventually they go on to eventually develop perhaps a mild cognitive impairment state. It may then eventually get to the dementia state um, where they're having Alzheimer's disease dementia. Um, and that's usually when we're making the, the actual diagnosis. But the, the presence of this amyloid has likely been going on for many years, even in a preclinical state. Um, uh, and, you know, the, I think, of course, our interest collectively would be to identify people who might be at risk for this in much earlier years in life and be able to develop interventions that could target uh, treatment at that phase so that they don't eventually get to the point where they have neurodegeneration as, as they get older. Um, Long story short here, with reduced cholinergic activity, uh, uh, this leads to death and dysfunction of neurons um, and uh, results in the reduction of something called choline acetyltransferase, 
Um, this is a neurotransmitter uh, 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 pro enzyme that basically affects the breakdown um, of acetylcholine. Um, and uh, what essentially we get um, is a reduction in this neurotransmitter of acetylcholine. And it's thought that this cholinergic deficit is um, uh, what uh, contributes to uh, impairments in functioning. And so some of our treatments for uh, Alzheimer's disease in terms of pharmacologic treatments are aimed at trying to improve this type of cholinergic activity. In terms of imaging, I think I mentioned to you all before that we might look at uh, structural neuroimaging. When we talk about structural, we're talking about taking a picture and seeing what it looks like. And so um, the two main tools there are MRI and CAT scan. And, and both will give us quite a bit of data. Um, uh, specifically on the MRI, we may see a, a, a non-specific generalized atrophy or just overall shrinkage. And because of that shrinkage, we may see what perceives to be enlargement of the ventricles. The ventricles are the space where cerebral spinal fluid is gonna be located. And so as there's more atrophy, we see the, 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 the space for, for, for CSF increase. Um, and then in addition to that, um, we may see specific focal atrophy in certain areas of the brain and what we call the mesiotemporal region, which tends to be sort of like this region over here, um, but a little bit deeper inside. And that, the, the, that those um, portions of the brain are um, where the hippocampus is located. And the hippocampus is thought to be an area primarily involved in memory formation. And so we may see atrophy of the hippocampus um, uh, on MRI. Uh, and so that might be certainly a suggestion of something like Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, we may in fact be able to see these same sorts of uh, findings on CT scans as well, but it may be better visualized with MRI. On FDG PET scans, I mentioned this before. So the PET scan is a CAT scan where we give radio labeled glucose and we look to see where is it taken up in the brain. And the idea is, is that in Alzheimer's disease, we see a pattern where the glucose doesn't get taken up in certain areas. And those particular areas are in the temporal lobes and the parietal lobes. And these tend to be the posterior temporal lobes uh, and the parietal lobes. And so we see this generally bilaterally. And so um, for cases where it's not clear clinically what's going on, the FDG PET scan might be really helpful, particularly in earlier phases of illness to um, tease out whether it's due to Alzheimer's disease or for instance, due to frontotemporal dementia, because we don't see this kind of pattern in frontotemporal dementia. Uh, we see it though in Alzheimer's disease. So. Um, if we talk about risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, I've mentioned a few of these already, uh, age being the most significant risk factor. So the older you are, the higher the risk, but that does not necessarily mean that you are guaranteed uh, to get Alzheimer's disease. And I bring this up to point out that I think sometimes there is a sense as though that, that, that uh, having uh, uh, major cognitive dysfunction is just 
part and parcel with getting older, but I disagree. I believe that this is clearly pathology um, uh, and uh, there can be uh, wonderful examples of healthy, normal aging, um, but definitely it is a risk factor as people age. Um, I also discussed that uh, being a woman increases uh, one's risk for developing Alzheimer's disease compared to men. And again, this is beyond just the fact that women tend to outlive uh, men. Um, uh, in addition, um, you know, I, 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 there has been obviously a great deal of um, uh, investigation into perhaps uh, the many ways in which um, uh, uh, racism uh, uh, impacts uh, a range of different uh, uh, domains uh, of life in America from financial institutions um, to health disparities. And certainly this is relevant for Alzheimer's disease as well um, as uh, uh, Black Americans and um, uh, individuals uh, uh, with Latin American uh, uh, backgrounds are at increased risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. And it's not solely based upon, uh, for instance, perhaps increased risk factors for things that might uh, uh, demonstrate an increase, uh, uh, such as like you know vascular risk factors and things like that. Um, uh, a, a question at hand here is: Do you know of any substance use risk correlations with Alzheimer's disease development? Um, you know that's a great question. Um, you know I'm not aware specifically that 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 for instance alcohol use disorder um, or uh, uh, you know for instance cocaine use or amphetamine use would fundamentally increase the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease in particular. Um, uh, although um, individuals with those illnesses may have done other um, damage to the brain, which might then make them perhaps more vulnerable for, for having uh, Alzheimer's disease express itself. So the way I like to think of it is, is that they might be already at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, but the expression of that illness may in fact be impacted by the substance use. And certainly, you know, for individuals who have like, for instance, uh, uh, you know, amphetamine use disorder, um, cocaine use disorder, uh, th these individuals are, are undoubtedly experiencing a wide range of, um, of uh, periods of time when probably their blood pressures are not optimally controlled. And I would imagine that there is probably a, a, an increased risk of uh, vascular disease for those individuals. So certainly they may be at increased risk for developing vascular dementia. And as we mentioned uh, previously, it's actually quite common that vascular disease can co-mingle um, with Alzheimer's disease as well. So I, I definitely think that there can be a role for substance use disorder um, contributing to an increased expression of, of such illnesses. Um, in terms of family history, it's important to note that, um, that you know, family history is a little bit complicated. Um, there are some uh, genetic 
uh, early onset uh, uh, illnesses that may be directly related to, you know, receiving a, a specific uh, allele from, an, uh, from a gene that could increase a person's risk for developing uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, but in general, uh, uh, it, it, the majority uh, of Alzheimer's disease cases, which are late onset, do not have just a simple um, uh, inheritance, uh, dominant recessive uh, inheritance pattern. That said, for late onset illness, those that have the uh, two copies of the ApoE4 allele, which is um, encoded on chromosome 19, um, it, uh, is a risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, and uh, I also would point out that trisomy 21 or Down syndrome is an increase, uh, 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 is a risk factor state for developing Alzheimer's disease. And, and um, these individuals with Down syndrome will very often develop Alzheimer's disease, let's say in their 30s, um, uh, and you know, uh, will die young as a function of uh, that illness. Um, prior history of head trauma um, is, a risk factor for um, Alzheimer's disease. And it's of course complicated because uh, frequent uh, head trauma may also be associated with CTE um, uh, 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 as well. Um, and so there may be commingling of, of those illnesses. Um, and uh, education uh, uh, is a risk factor or lack of education is a risk factor for going on to develop Alzheimer's disease. Um, in terms of those risk factors for familial Alzheimer's disease, I, I think I mentioned before that for younger adult uh, Alzheimer's disease, there are a few um, well-identified genes, presenilin-1, presenilin-2, an amyloid precursor protein. And so this amyloid precursor protein, which is on chromosome 21, is thought to be um, uh, more expressed in individuals with, for instance, Down syndrome. They have three copies of, uh, of uh, this chromosome. And so um, they get a greater expression of this amyloid precursor protein leading to increased production of amyloid and you know, sort of the, the, the follow-up sequelae from that. Um, again, these, these are autosomal dominant uh, um, uh, uh, versions uh, uh, of the illness, but these are going to be fairly infrequent and we tend to see it in younger uh, uh, onset uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease. So I wanna move on and start talking to you all a little bit about treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I actually wanna talk about aducanumab. Uh, I don't know it, it, in the group if anyone here has heard of this. If you have, feel free to type in uh, yes in the chat box. Uh, 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 this may have shown up uh, uh, in the news uh, during the last week uh, uh, or so uh, as this uh, agent was uh, just FDA approved on June 7th. Uh, uh, and so I wanted to sort of bring it up here because, you know, there's nothing like seeing it thrown out there on CNN and, and uh, uh, LA Times and elsewhere. It's of course a very big deal as uh, this is uh, it, the first disease modifying treatment that has been FDA approved. Um, and it also, um, 
is the first agent that has been approved in, I think, about 18 years, um, as the last agent prior to that was Mementine, um, which uh, uh, was approved in 2003. Um, so, so a couple of things I just wanted to mention about uh, uh, this uh, agent. So this is a, a, a monoclonal uh, antibody. Um, and basically uh, the antibody binds to uh, uh, aggregates of amyloid protein. Um, and uh, it preferentially is gonna bind to the, uh, the plaques in the brain as opposed to the vessels uh, that may be present. And uh, uh, there were a few studies that were performed. Um, and interestingly, there's quite a bit of controversy regarding this agent as the, um, the, the data thus far um, has not definitively demonstrated clinical improvement um, with the presence of uh, uh, this drug. Um, and it is uh, given as an infusion once every four weeks, uh, and it is expensive. Um, this cost that you're seeing here of $4,000 per high-dose infusion or $56,000 per year, this is the wholesale cost um, uh, of the drug, uh, and it is a... Uh, 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 I mean, if, if people actually paid full price on that, um, the expense uh, associated with treating every person with Alzheimer's disease with this drug would be more than probably all other meds uh, uh, combined, uh, treating probably all sorts of, uh, of illnesses within um, uh, the uh, CMS budget. So um, this is... Um, <clears throat> going to be a huge factor going forward for thinking about who are going to be the appropriate candidates for this type of treatment and you know what forms of insurance uh, if any are going to uh, approve paying for uh, this uh, this form of treatment um, uh, and uh, there are side effects from it which uh, during the clinical trials included headaches, falls, uh, diarrhea, confusion, and something called ARIA, or amyloid-related uh, imaging abnormalities. And basically what, what ARIA are, are incidental findings of what look like perhaps little microbleeds on neuroimaging, um, possibly some like little areas of swelling as well. Um, these don't seem to be clinically oriented with any changes in mental status, but it has been observed uh, during the trials. And so um, it's unclear exactly what all this is going to mean uh, going forward. Um, I really wanted to just get you all up to speed with the fact that this is something new out there. It's expensive. Um, it is uh, approved with some controversy um, uh, and uh, it's going to continue to be monitored. Um, one of the, the, the base reasons or the basis for the approval was the fact that the, the company that manufactures it were able to demonstrate that it does in fact reduce amyloid. And so given the known amyloid hypothesis, um, it is thought that this may in fact lead to clinical improvement. 
Um, so there are, is going to be, um, as part of this uh, accelerated approval pathway that the FDA offered, there is going to be a uh, requirement for there to be phase four trials. And basically the company is going to have to still demonstrate that the medication actually works not only in reducing amyloid, but in improving cognitive dysfunction or uh, improving uh, cognitive decline. Uh, and uh, that is something um, that uh, if they don't demonstrate could mean that the medication is ultimately removed from the marketplace. So this is a very exciting but controversial uh, new piece of information and more to be continued. Uh, some of you may have heard of cholinesterase inhibitors, as I think I mentioned before. Uh, acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter and there's a thought that there is uh, disruption in this cholinergic flow uh, as Alzheimer's disease progresses. And so the cholinesterase inhibitors are basically um, medications that um, are thought to uh, impair the breakdown of acetylcholine so that hopefully there'd be more acetylcholine in the synapses so that we would see better communication from one neuron to another. Um, and so the three main agents are donepezil, uh, galantamine, and rivastigmine. Um, the side effects of these agents can include nausea and potentially vomiting and weight loss. So this is something that we have to be on the lookout for. Uh, sometimes we start these agents and people stop eating or they, they get more nauseous and that might be a reason that we have to stop it. They also can develop diarrhea sometimes as well. And that is, of course is, it's, it's probably not worth the potential benefits of these medicines if individuals are experiencing these more pronounced um, uh, side effects. Um, and rarely we can see a, a, a reduction in heart rate and so if individuals are already operating with a really low heart rate, it can bring it down even further, which can then make them lightheaded and dizzy and potentially pass out. So um, these are usually things that we would want to explore before initiating a cholinesterase inhibitor. Um, these agents have been around since the mid nineties. Um, and uh, uh, these are still considered our first line pharmacologic treatments for Alzheimer's disease. Um, these, uh, again, are not disease modifying, but may delay deterioration for some pe period of time. In essence, may, may sort of slow down the slope of decline, but it's not going to change the fact that there is going to continue to be a decline. Um, and it may uh, soft data help with some behavioral disturbances. So if a person is experiencing behavioral disturbances, it may be worth consideration of adding one of these agents to see if it helps. And finally, there may be some suggestion that these agents may, may sort of slow down the, the time until a person needs to be institutionalized. So for all of these reasons, if a person has Alzheimer's disease, it would be certainly standard of care to give a try to one of these agents. Um, uh, and generally we start them for a month and then titrate the dose from there. Donepezil is the best tolerated uh, of the medications. Um, uh, and I just wanna make you all aware of rivastigmine because although that one as an oral medicine is not as easily tolerated, but it is available in addition as a patch. So for patients that have a hard time taking medications and that's something that we often will struggle with, 
they can potentially have this patch put on them every single day and then have it removed and put on another one. And so um, it's a way to perhaps get the medication on board for somebody who's resistant to take medications. Um, uh, there's another medication, and I'm sorry, I don't have it listed on here. It's called uh, Memantine. Uh, my slide, I think I messed this up, but Memantine, uh, also known as the, the trade name of this was Nemenda, is what's called an NMDA receptor antagonist, and it presents the excessive glutaminergic stimulation of postsynaptic cells. It's a lot of fancy language for saying that 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 this increase in uh, glutamate activity can result in uh, changes in uh, calcium, which can then ultimately result in um, some cell death. Um, it, uh, memantine is really indicated for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease, um, and uh, it can be used in combination with donepazil, galantamine, or rivastigmine. So it would not be uncommon for people to be on those two medications together uh, to try to do the best that we can to manage uh, uh, both cognitive impairment and functional decline. But again, memantine tends to not be added until moderate or severe disease, whereas the cholinesterase inhibitors, we will tend to start in early uh, stages of disease. Uh, 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 at the mild uh, state. So, um, okay, I'm gonna just briefly talk about treatment of behavioral disturbances. Um, SSRIs and SNRI antidepressants can be used as can be uh, for agitation. We can see first and second generation antipsychotics used. Uh, there is a black box warning. So we often will let family members know that there's an increased risk for, for potentially death. Um, in individuals who are receiving these antipsychotics. And we will utilize uh, uh, antidepressants and anticonvulsants sometimes to manage agitation as well. For psychotic symptoms, we can use some of the second generation antipsychotics. Um, and trazodone is an agent that we'll use for insomnia. All treatments uh, for behavioral disturbances are off label. Um, I, I'm being told I have 15 minutes left in the training, so I'm gonna stay focused here and talk to you all a little bit about vascular dementia. The clinical features, it's important to recognize that this is a heterogeneous set of disorders. There's an abrupt onset. Uh, uh, usually a person has a vascular event and you know, like a big stroke, for instance, um, and then they have a new set of cognitive impairments. And as they have future uh, events, we see that they're gonna be relatively stable until the next future event. And so these kind of look like stairs, if you will, and we'll see a stepwise progression. The nature of the deficits really depend upon the locations of the injury. So for instance, uh, individuals who have a stroke on, on the left in, uh, uh, side, the middle cerebral artery will ex experience um, uh, language uh, dysfunction and depression, uh, potentially the apraxia that I discussed, whereas individuals who have a stroke on the right side might experience more visual spatial deficits uh, or may you know, outright miss like half of their visual field. Um, the median survival time for vascular dementia tends to be a bit shorter compared to Alzheimer's disease. And in terms of the clinical features, we see that more complex attention is impaired for these individuals. 
and we see slowing, more psychomotor slowing for these individuals. We see more of a frontal executive dysfunction present uh, uh, early on. And in terms of memory compared to Alzheimer's disease, we may see that their memory function overall is, is better compared to Alzheimer's disease, but we see more of a retrieval pattern of, of, of deficit. So for instance, we may see that these individuals, um, uh, for instance, um, uh, may be able to register items, they may not recall them, but if you give them clues, they may then be able to recall the items. Whereas in Alzheimer's disease, I'll give them clues and the clues don't seem to help. Um, we, seem, we tend to see greater apathy and depression and affective ability for people with vascular dimension, dementia, and we may see focal neurologic deficits for them as well. In terms of the risk factors, I'll just point out age, male gender, and basically factors such as diabetes, cardiac disease, and known strokes. And so with that in mind, uh, you know, most of our treatments are going to be aimed at trying to target those things. Um, uh, the neuropathology that we're going to see are little areas of basically um, a, a, a necrosis or essentially like a breakdown of, 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 of areas of the brain and, and holes there, what we call lacoons. Uh, and I'm sorry, and we'll see white matter uh, uh, lesions as well, which can be seen on imaging. In terms of the imaging, um, we'll see these specific areas um, uh, uh, of little holes that su suggest vascular events, and we might see white matter lesions on the, on the MRI. And so for the PET scan, in contrast to what we saw for Alzheimer's disease, what we see in vascular dementia is just patchy areas of decreased uptake of, of glucose, depending on where those vascular events occurred. In terms of treatment, we're gonna to try to prevent future vascular disease. We're gonna treat hypertension and diabetes and control cholesterol. And it's important to know that there are no FDA approved treatments for vascular dementia. Um, there's an unclear benefit for using cholinesterase inhibitors. But again, if there's co-mingling of vascular with dementia with, with Alzheimer's disease, then we might wanna try using those agents. And frequently people may develop post-stroke depression or psychosis but none of the, the treatments that we use for that are FDA approved for that purpose. I wanna move on to dementia with Lewy bodies or DLB. This affects 15% of the patients with dementia and it's the third most common after Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. Men tend to be affected more than women. There's a shorter survival time, few years uh, following diagnosis, usually like around three to four years. Um, we see the presence of what are called Lewy bodies uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the uh, neuropathology. And the clinical features are that we see impairments in attention, frontal executive functioning, and we can see visual spatial deficits. So in this way, there's kind of some similarities with vascular disease as well as with Alzheimer's disease. We can see the presence of Parkinsonism, meaning it can kind of look like Parkinson's disease where we could see rigidity, we can see slowing of movement, which is most common, and it tends to be symmetric for people with dementia with Lewy bodies. And part of the clinical features include cognitive fluctuations. So sometimes a person might be much more clear at one moment, and then another time might be much more impaired. We also may see the presence of visual hallucinations. And so when we see this sort of triad of cognitive fluctuations, 
Parkinsonism and visual hallucinations with functional decline, um, we're going to be thinking about dementia with Lewy bodies. Um, supportive features can include falls or high sensitivity to the side effects of antipsychotic medicines. Um, some of these people will be at increased risk for passing out. Um, and, and interestingly, they may have, in addition to visual hallucinations, they may have other types of hallucinations or delusions uh, that may be present as well. Um, in terms of the imaging, we're gonna see global atrophy with disproportionate atrophy in the temporal lobes. And similar to the Alzheimer's disease picture, we see the temporal lobes and the parietal lobes having uh, a, a low glucose uptake, but we all also will see um, the occipital lobes or sort of the, the back of the brain uh, uh, having uh, low metabolism uh, 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 as well for glucose uptake. And that may very well correlate with those visual hallucinations as the occipital lobe is re responsible for uh, visual functioning. Um, in terms of treatment, uh, we use the cholinesterase inhibitors, similar with Alzheimer's disease, and off-label um, for treating some of those psychotic symptoms, we may use quetiapine or olanzapine or even very low-dose clozapine for individuals. So I want to move on and talk about frontotemporal lobar degeneration. FTLD is a spectrum of dementing illnesses. FTD is the main one that you may be familiar with, or frontotemporal dementia. This is a, 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 the main syndrome and is a behavioral var variant of this illness and represents about two to 5% of dementing illnesses. And the usual onset is before age 65. So these individuals tend to be a little bit younger. And um, some other illnesses in the FTLD category um, it can include a condition called semantic dementia. That's when um, it's primarily anterior temporal lobes that are being affected and not really so much the frontal lobes. And there's also one called progressive non-fluent aphasia. And this is one that really is affecting language, but not necessarily behavior. Um, and so these are the whole spectrum of FTLD illnesses. But in terms of thinking about FTD, which is the most common, the clinical features can include an insidious onset and a gradual progression. And these folks are really impaired in terms of behavior. They start to develop a decline in regulating their personal conduct. They start to have changes in interpersonal skills and boundaries. They may start to develop changes in tactfulness in their manners, and they may start to make inappropriate comments. Sometimes because of that, these individuals may be misdiagnosed as having bipolar illness and being manic, um, when in fact, what may be going on is that they've developed uh, a frontotemporal dementia. Um, and examples of this might be the person, you know, uh, patients with FTD, you know, may go to, um, may go to settings and, and just engage in inappropriate behaviors. I, I heard one example of a person who went to church and then they started like um, giving massages to, to other uh, individuals that were sitting down in their seats in the church. Um, uh, another story I heard was like an individual who uh, went to um, Thanksgiving dinner and then at the dinner with all these family members picked up the plate and started, you know, sort of uh, licking the plate, for instance. And so seeing these changes in personal conduct uh, um, I, uh, were pretty striking for uh, those family members. 
Um, and so these are like early changes in personality that we can see. We also may see some early emotional blunting. And in particular, there's a very early loss of insight. So these individuals, unfortunately, have very poor insight into their illness. Um, and of note, um, although it's an insidious onset with gradual progression, the disease course can last up to 10 years in duration. Um, and psychosis is pretty uncommon, but we can see compulsive behaviors. Um, we can see changes in eating preferences. Some of these folks will start to get really hyper oral and start to eat excessively. They may start raiding the refrigerator excessively um, where there needs to be locks placed on the refrigerators. We may see changes in sexual functioning. They either may get hypersexual or they may go in the opposite direction and go completely hyposexual. And they may develop a, a, a significant lack of empathy and not really understand um, you know, sort of how they're affecting others uh, with their behaviors or really be able to understand others uh, in their potential suffering. Um, and, uh, you know, possible impulsivity can and disinhibition can lead to an increase in verbal activity. But interestingly, as the illness progresses, there tends to be a decrease in spontaneous speech. And eventually these individuals will develop terminal mutism um, and eventually uh, uh, will die of their illnesses uh, very impaired. Um, in the earlier stages, they'll have more commonly uh, executive dysfunction, impaired judgment, but they'll have relatively early pre preserved memory and visual spatial functioning. So, you know, you go to test these individuals and they're doing fine on, on their, their gross memory screening, but they're going to really have some frontal impairments and we're going to see um, a lot of judgment impairments. Um, uh, and as they get more impaired in their functioning, they will eventually later develop apathy. Um, in terms of the neuropathology, um, I'm just going to point out that the frontal lobe is most effective, perhaps anterior temporal lobes. Um, and uh, 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 serotonin may somewhat be involved in these cases. Um, in terms of the imaging, we see decreased metabolism on those FDG PET scans in the frontal lobes and perhaps in the anterior temporal lobes with relative sparing of the locations for Alzheimer's disease, which were in the um, uh, parietal lobes and the posterior temporal lobes. And so that's how we're able to utilize this tool to perhaps help tease out uh, a diagnosis when it's not entirely clear. In terms of the risk factors, uh, probably the most significant are family history risk factors. Um, and uh, there's a thought that uh, uh, individuals um, may have um, some specific gene mutations related to um, tau protein. In terms of treatment, there are no FDA approved treatments and uh, cholinesterase inhibitors that we talked about for Alzheimer's disease have not been found to be beneficial. So we generally don't uh, provide that. Off-label, we may use some SSRIs, and primarily treatments are going to be behavioral interventions for these folks. So I just want to spend my last few minutes with you talking about sort of a more broad approach to uh, individuals with major neurocognitive disorders, thinking, thinking about the medical management, with which we've kind of talked about, but also thinking about safety assessment management, behavioral management, and social interventions. Um, in terms of thinking about the safety assessment, um, I am always thinking early on about getting 
individual safe return bracelets in case they get lost. Um, uh, and given that they may start to have memory deficits, it becomes important to think about oversight for management of medications. I'm always wanting to screen for weapons for these patients and try to have those removed from the home. Um, uh, and driving becomes a huge, you know, sort of trigger discussion. And um, we're actually mandated to, to report uh, uh, a confidential morbidity report for anybody who is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. That in of, it, in of itself does not guarantee that a person would have their license taken away, but they would need to be retested. And ultimately, um, uh, you know, driving is, is likely going to need to be removed early on upon having a, a diagnosis. And this becomes, I think, a, a pretty dynamic issue with patients and, and sometimes with their families. Um, on occasion, I have to get adult protective services involved, particularly for self-neglect, uh, 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 and uh, they may need to get involved early um, uh, in order to um, get the ball rolling for circumstances in which individuals may need an escalation in care. Additionally, if they are engaging in aggressive behavior, um, they may be, for instance, um, uh, injuring a, a, a spouse, for instance, and if that spouse is over the age of 65, um, that's another reason for us to have to uh, uh, submit a mandatory, a mandatory report for APS. Uh, additionally, um, these individuals might be at risk for being abused themselves, and so that might also be circumstances that may require an APS report. In terms of behavioral management, there's a wide range in the literature um, uh, of things that can be done to help manage um, uh, behavioral disturbances associated with dementia. And I just, I'm just listing here for you some of the, the things that can be helpful. Um, I would point out that there are a wide range of um, training videos that can be um, uh, provided uh, online to family members uh, uh, and friends of individuals taking care of uh, individuals with dementia to try to assist them. Um, and social interventions are incredibly important in very early phases, if I can, estate planning sorts of things like getting DPOAs for healthcare in place, uh, perhaps thinking about uh, getting power of attorney um, established while a person may still have capacity to make those decisions. At a later stage, conservatorships may need to be involved. Um, and, you know, caregivers get burned out. It, it's it, it just so incredibly challenging. Uh, up to 50% may have depressive illness. So it becomes important to make sure that they're getting adequate support and at times getting respite. Um, in terms of interventions for the individual with dementia, we always want to try to do our best to um, uh, reorient them when needed, um, try to speak with them face to face, um, make sure that if there are any sensory deficits um, that you're able to replace um, uh, uh, things like hearing aids or put on glasses or have dentures in as that can help to reduce um, uh, difficulties for them expressing uh, forms of agitation or not being able to take in information appropriately. Uh, in terms of interventions for the caregiver, thinking about identifying precipitating factors and modifiable causes uh, is important. And then in terms of caregiver uh, assessment, make, making sure that they attend to their own medical care. 
um, that they are engaging in self-care activities for um, self-reduction, uh, stress reduction, and that they're able to get the appropriate um, uh, uh, caregiver uh, respite when necessary. And I've just listed for you here um, uh, the website that we have here at UCLA Health that has a, a, just a wonderful wealth of caregiver education videos. Um, in my last uh, couple of minutes here, I just want to very briefly talk about capacity. Um, uh, these individuals um, uh, 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 sometimes become impaired where functionally they are in, uh, 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 they might have still the functional capacity to uh, make specific decisions, but they might have a hard time with sustained decisional capacity. And so, I know at some other trainings, you have probably heard or seen about probate conservatorship. I just wanna point out that for individuals with dementia, they may be candidates for probate conservatorship and that there could be a conservatorship either for the person or for the estate. And the main take home here is, is that the conservatorship for person is for an individual who is unable to provide for their personal needs for physical health, as well as for food, clothing, or shelter. And so, uh, uh, you know, this is a slightly different criteria than for a grave disability for LPS conservatorship, uh, but it is a, a tool available when people are, are very uh, uh, impaired and need surrogate decision makers and don't have those uh, uh, other tools um, uh, that we described in place uh, for estate planning. And a conservatorship, it's just important to know, can come either with or without general medical powers. So with general medical powers, the conservator can provide consent for, for treatments, uh, but not over the conservatee's objection. Um, but with general medical powers, um, uh, the conservator may provide consent to treatment over the conservatee's objection, except for a few exceptions, such as electroconvulsive therapy, psychosurgery, psychiatric admission, things of that sort. Um, and uh, I'm just leaving this slide for you, which you can see, to point out that um, there, there is a section in the probate code for dementia powers, which would provide for the conservator the powers to be able to place a person in a locked non-psychiatric facility if that's the lowest level or least restrictive place for that person to, to, to reside. And it could provide the powers for an individual to be able to provide uh, uh, um, consent for psychotropic medications for managing the behavioral disturbances associated with their dementia. Um, uh, just in the spirit of time, I'm going to skip this slide here. I just want to list here that this, these uh, specific areas are the areas outlined in California Senate Bill 730, which is the Due Process and Competence Determinations Act. And these are the individual domains that can be assessed for a probate conservatorship and severe impairment in even just one of these domains may be sufficient for a person to have a probate conservatorship. Um, it needs to clearly um, uh, reflect that, that, that those domains are impairing a person's ability to function independently. Um, and uh, in terms of cognitive domains which affect decision-making, the attention and concentration can be tested with some bedside tools such as serial sevens or an A test or testing even days of the week. 
Um, for orientation, we can just ask simple questions to assess that. For memory, we can test immediate recall, giving a person three objects and seeing if, if they can give us those three back. We can ask for recent recall uh, and uh, basically ask them to recall those objects again um, in five minutes. Um, more remote recall uh, is uh, uh, you know, asking about prior events from let's say 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, in terms of communication, we can do basic tests for language, uh, seeing if they understand stories or naming items. And uh, lastly, frontal executive functions can often be tested through some simple tasks, such as, um, uh, uh, for instance, asking patients to draw a clock, and we can uh, have them draw that clock uh, and, and see the impairment. So I just want to show you here briefly, these are the kinds of changes that we can see with, with visual spatial deficits. If you look here, you see this is the model of what would might, might be normal. And then asking a person with milder Alzheimer's disease to draw um, a, a copy, you can see where they've added some features here and are missing some features here. And with even just a moderate dementia, you can see how profoundly impaired their visual spatial functioning is. And then I just want to show you the clock drawing test. Uh, I might ask a person to draw a clock and set the hands to 10 after uh, 11 uh, uh, or 10 past 11. And ideally, you know, this is a little bit of a sloppy clock, but this is what my clock might look like. And then um, this is what early Alzheimer's disease might look like, where the numbers are not quite lined up. And you see the hands are kind of set uh, in a little bit, uh, uh, the right numbers, but a little bit offset. As you get to moderate Alzheimer's disease, uh, you can see they're pretty impaired. There aren't even any hands at all. The numbers are outside the circle. And you get to severe Alzheimer's disease and you really can't make sense of what they're actually drawing here. So these are the kinds of uh, uh, impairments that we can see with just a basic screening tool such as a clock. And it can be really helpful for giving you an idea as to just how impaired somebody is. So finally, I just wanna list here for you some re referral resources that you may have available um, either to uh, patients' families, uh, uh, other caregivers, um, uh, uh, and uh, others that are involved in providing care for, for patients. And uh, I just wanna thank you all for your time and attention and staying for the duration of this session. Um, and uh, I'm happy to be available to answer any questions if anybody has any.